You are listening to When Policy Meets Practice from JFF, where we delve into the practical realities of education and workforce development policy with practitioners on JFF's Policy Leadership Trust. Welcome to another episode of this podcast from JFF. I'm Paul Fain, your host. This episode, we look into how community colleges can better engage adult learners, many of whom hold some college credits but no credential. As you all know, this is an urgent challenge for higher education as millions of Americans are looking to gain skills to either find or change jobs. First up is Robert Vela, president of San Antonio College. The two-year institution in Texas this year won the Aspen Prize for Community College Excellence. Bella told me that more than 300,000 former college students in greater San Antonio lack a college degree. How do we get you back, get you graduated, but in turn have a model, a funding model that incentivizes to bring those students back? Because at the end of the day, those 300 plus thousand former students back into a community with specific credentials around marketable skills, demonstrating their value and worth within a community is a great thing for this community. I also spoke with Ajita Talwakar-Manan, president and CEO for Calbright College, a new online public institution in California that has a mandate of serving adult students. Calbright offers asynchronous competency-based credentials, a promising delivery method, particularly for time-stretched students, but one that can be a challenge under funding formulas and financial aid structures. Manan, who served as an official at the Education Department during the Obama administration, talked about how to rethink policy to better help working learners. And a model like Calbright's, which allows flexibility on time, but is really focused on outcomes, this is the moment that we have to figure out what it actually takes to deliver these new learner-centered models for this diverse range of learners, and using that understanding to think about how we engineer the alignment of our policies. As always, I was joined by two experts from JFF who shared their thoughts about what we heard in the interviews with college leaders. For this episode, I spoke with Mary Claggett, Senior Director for Workforce Policy at JFF, and Nate Anderson, a Senior Director there. Okay, here's the first interview. Okay, I'm speaking with Robert Vela, the President of San Antonio College in Texas. Robert, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Paul? Doing well. So obviously not an easy year for anybody, but your college has had some pretty good news here and there. You've gotten some awards, you've gotten a big gift. And, you know, just I, I want to I wonder how you transform some of that energy into trying to reach the students who've left higher ed. What you're working to do right now in terms of serving folks who have some college no credential. Yeah, that's a great question, Paul. I mean, we are now Aspen winners and we received a $15 million gift from Mackenzie Scott. And we're very appreciative and to be affirmed in that capacity. But you're right. We've got about 300 plus thousand students or former students here in the San Antonio area with some college, no degree. And it pains me to know that we don't have really a, a system or a way of recouping those students, right? In, in the way we are assessed at the state level, those are counted as those folks that did not graduate. So in essence, they're failures, but in our in our eyes, they're not, right? They've got value in our community. And how do we begin to really reimagine learning and ensure that because they did start with us and they did take courses with us, how do we ensure that they can articulate that learning to a future employer, even though they didn't graduate? So we've been on a very, very intentional journey 
to, first of all, admit and acknowledge that our current way of assessing and articulating to employers our community is no longer applicable. It's antiquated. A college transcript is meaningless if you can't articulate the learning and the value you bring to an employer, right? So how do we begin to assess those marketable skills that even if you walked away with 15 hours, there is some value that you can give back to this community because there was true learning that did happen and we were able to assess it and we're able to produce documentation that you did do the work and you did learn something. So I think that's key for us as we begin to really bring those 300,000 former students back. I think it's important that we also get away from these 16 weeks, 12 weeks, eight weeks, parts of term that really are no longer beneficial to our current students and former students. They want short-term micro-credentialing, badging quickly so they can get a job and continue their journey as they're trying to achieve their academic, personal, and career goals. So I got to think that policymakers across the board in Texas and everywhere are supportive of efforts to re-engage adult students from a workforce perspective and, and beyond. But also that some of what you just discussed, short-term credentials, alternative ways of assessing learning for a kind of experiential transcript, don't really fit into the existing incentive systems in the state. Am I, am I right about that, Guess You are absolutely right. So what happens is all these efforts to reintegrate those former students don't really fit in our current funding model, don't really fit in our current efforts to ensure that we're providing a great education to all the citizens within our community. So it's one of these things where policymakers need to really understand the holistic approach specifically that community colleges take within their community to educate its community, right? So, and how do we fund that? How do we incentivize that, right? Because we can simply say, well, gosh, you're an adult, you took classes, you didn't graduate, good luck to you. Or our approach can be, hey, you're halfway done. How do we get you back, get you graduated, but in turn have a model, a funding model that incentivizes to bring those students back? Because at the end of the day, those 300 plus thousand former students back into a community with specific credentials around marketable skills, demonstrating their value and worth within a community is a great thing for this community. Just thinking about, you've got a lot of strong community colleges in the state. You've got, again, I would think a legislature that's generally supportive of the sector in terms at least of its role with workforce development. Any support in recent years that you've seen that's encouraging in terms of incentives, any programs at the state level or, or funding streams that you would highlight that are particularly helpful in what you're trying to do? Yeah, I think the Perkins funding, right, that we get for traditional workforce development has been critical for us because without it, we can't buy the state-of-the-art equipment to ensure that our students are prepared to enter the workforce, right? Luckily for us, we're a HSI, Hispanic Serving Institution. We can apply for Title V grants specifically to get a specific money to elevate people of color that traditionally may not have the means as a first-generation, highly minoritized community. So those things are very calculated to ensure that we're serving our community. And it just depends on the makeup of your community and what your efforts are to ensure that you're able to elevate all students within that. So I think we're seeing some movement at the state level. It's still very traditional in a sense, meaning it's still very transfer focused. And even the transfer focus, Paul, is difficult, right? Because 
you get a student that graduates with 60 hours or let's say 66 hours, they transfer and they'll take the credits from another state institution from a university. But that specific college within the university, like the School of Business, may say we're only going to accept 30 hours. Right. So, yes, the institution took the credit, but the specific college that you're applying for that's very competitive may not take all your courses. So, so in essence, students are having to start from scratch again to try to get some momentum within that university. That's the piece that we need to figure and connect and connect the dots to ensure that our students have a seamless pipeline all the way through. A last quick question there. You reminded me of 20,000 students. What that 15 million, I think that's what you got from Mackenzie Scott, can do, obviously transformational for your institution. How does that apply to the debates that are happening right now in Washington, where, you know, I think some folks are worried for your sector after a lot of talk, maybe the workforce money won't be coming from Washington. I mean, how much of a difference can some of what's being discussed make for your students? That's a great question. For us, this gift, Paul, is transformational. It's the gift that will continue to give because it will be an endowment. It will continue to give year after year. And the part that we don't often get funding for is you're absolutely right. Uh, The workforce programs, those high wage, high demand type jobs, we have to have the best equipment, the best simulation labs to ensure that our students are prepared. In addition, there's a commitment to micro-credentialing and badging. And there's a commitment with the use of money to ensure that students have all the wraparound services that they need, like, you know, housing and and food and mental health and those kinds of things that we traditionally don't get funded for. And also access, right, is funding part of our Alamo promise to ensure that students that don't have a means to come to college can get free tuition if they meet certain criteria for at least the two years that they come to one of the Alamo colleges. That's a commitment to access, completion, but also all the wraparound services that you need and the equipment and training materials and faculty development you need to produce the best possible future employer or future university graduate. Well, I know there's more awareness of the need of the wraparound supports amid the pandemic, but we'll leave it here. President Vela, thanks so much for your time and congrats again on the recognition you've received this year. Thank you, Paul, for the opportunity, and it's been my pleasure. Next up is Ajita Talwakar-Manan. I'm speaking with Ajita Talwakar-Manan, president and CEO for Calbright College. Hello, Ajita. Hello, Paul. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for coming on. So we're talking about reaching and serving adult students. Your institution is designed to do just that. Can you describe its structure and how you seek to reach those students? Absolutely. Calbright, you probably know, and as you mentioned, it was really created to serve students who have historically lacked access to traditional forms of higher education. So what's most important to us is really understanding who our students are, what their goals are, their ambitions, you know, their motivations. We know that our students have really varied experiences with education. They come from a range of different backgrounds from all across California. And they're also juggling a lot of things. They're juggling either work or the economic pressures of being out of work. They're often balancing being a parent or a caregiver. But perhaps most importantly, they're adults who bring with them their own assets and abilities and aspirations for themselves and their families. You know, they've had these different experiences in the education and job markets. So what we do, you know, everything we are building in our higher education infrastructure 
including the way our education and training programs and supports are designed, kind of hold that understanding at the forefront. So we are online, but more importantly, we really pair asynchronous online learning with high-touch student support. So designing courses that prepare learners for jobs in in in-demand fields, that's a small part of the formula. We also have to be making sure that academic success is happening for our students through both proactive and reactive support, whether that's career coaching or cultivating an environment that students feel welcome in so that we can reach them, but they also they can reach us and they can come to us when they're having trouble, whether it's a technology issue or understanding something in a module. Absolutely. You know, it's an interesting idea to think of of designing an institution right now, what we know about how to best serve these students. And specifically for them. I wonder, given that I'm guessing most of the students you seek to enroll have had a hard time, have not have not had success with traditional education systems. How do you work around that? How do you welcome them back and encourage them that this is for them? It is everything in the way that we are orienting ourselves as an institution. We have done a lot of deep work, really engaging with the communities of prospective learners in different regions in the state, from different demographic backgrounds. And our understanding is really what drives what we do programmatically. So it is not just the students who are in our institution today, but the communities and the populations that we want to engage in a way that is deep and authentic. We are not just clamoring for enrollments. Many of them did work with focus groups and survey work with prospective learners we discovered sometimes they've had an adverse relationship with education or they've had an educational trauma. So I think engaging with each of the communities that we're engaged with in a way that is open and authentic and recognizes the skills and the talents and the capabilities that they bring to the table in the educational relationship we have with them becomes extraordinarily important. Doing a lot of active listening, which may sound silly, but often gets lost in the shuffle in our traditional institutions because we're not necessarily orienting not just all of our activities in terms of the programs that we choose, but also really the way that we engage in ensuring that the experience is designed in a way that is not just welcoming, but responsive to the needs we're seeing in the economy from a programmatic perspective, but also the needs we're seeing in our learners. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about the economy. How do you work to ensure that Calbright students will be prepared for for jobs that that exist, that they can get, that they can thrive in, and they can take to a well-paying career? It's a great question. We were designed to increase economic mobility and also close equity gaps. So for us, the engagement and alignment with employers and industry and the workforce system overall is very key. Often, we're not just retraining existing workers, but we're also getting existing and potential members of the workforce ready for career transitions, sometimes into a new industry or sometimes into an adjacent industry. And I think I can best illustrate this by example. An individual who works in a frontline customer service role in an area like retail that we're seeing a lot of declines in, they have valuable skills. So pairing it with Calbright's training could help them transition to a career managing a customer relationship management platform, which is a technology that is really transforming the way that businesses interact with their customers. So in designing our first program to help transition students into technology careers, to prepare students for those roles, we engaged with industry 
with the industry that was actually building the transformational technology so that we could better understand what the needed technical skills were. But we also engaged with businesses who were implementing these technologies and who would actually be doing the hiring for these skills. And we even went a step further. We considered the experiences of those already working in careers that we were preparing our students for. So adding a worker-centered lens to make sure that our programs are positioning folks for workplace success. The other piece of this is always going to be context. You know, we also have taken a great deal of care and effort to understand the diverse needs of regions across the state that we're serving. We're working closely with workforce boards in eight places in the state right now, both to reach learners who could benefit from the programs, but also to ensure as a statewide institution, we can actually focus on those areas of the state that have the greatest need, the population that we're serving, but also in terms of the needs of industry and and economic development areas of the state. So I think the one thing I would say is that a really important takeaway for me in all of this has been that it hasn't been about just engaging on the educational content. So sometimes we have this understanding in higher education that, you know, if we just get closer to employers, they'll tell us what they need. And then we'll design a program to that and then our students will get hired. But it's not just about engaging on the educational content. It's also about focusing on where somebody is starting out and continuously improving the students' experiences and opportunities to connect into the labor market. So we spend a great deal of time on that. We have this incredible student, Hector, who's one of our students who was a doctor recipient. He came to the U.S. when he was very young. He had to drop out of school in order to work. He wasn't eligible for financial aid. He enrolled in our IT support program, which was preparing students to earn an industry-recognized credential But then he had to re-enroll. He had to stop out for a while. And when he re-enrolled, he engaged with our career services team, found a new job in the field where he manages the operations of a fleet of delivery drones for a robotics company, who in part offered him the job because he was working towards that credential. He's now doubled down and is enrolling in our cybersecurity program and finding convenient times for him to be able to advance. For us, it is both about understanding what industry needs, but it is also about making the connection between what our students need and what our students need to be positioned for relative to that opportunity. We are constantly pairing the learning with high-touch supports because it's so important to guide students when they have questions, but it's also important to encourage and empower them as they move through their programs. So they're not walking away with just an updated resume but an understanding of how the new skills that they've acquired positions them for jobs, how to begin to navigate this next stage in their careers where they can seek out the positions and how to successfully interview for them. So being able to hold all of those pieces together requires a very interactive relationship with many different parts of industry, employers, but also regions of the state where individuals are. There's a great example of a specific person there and how that played out. I wanted to talk now on the pivot to policy, something you, you know well, having served some time here in Washington. Given the, the model that you've settled on for students like Hector, asynchronous, online only, high touch, and competency-based, what are some of the barriers you face with policy, whether state or federal, and what would you like to see to help that modality really work best for students? It's a great question, and we've been confronting this on a regular and daily basis. It's been most critical for us in this work to move competency-based education forward 
is the priority that California placed on creating the space for this kind of innovative work to happen and to happen in the public sector. The college, you may know, has a seven-year startup window that's focused on identifying the way it can be designing CBE, testing it, and really advancing it throughout the community college system in California to support success for this specific population. So connecting it back to the barriers faced by this specific population becomes key to that. So for me, at both the state and federal level, we really do need to be providing opportunities and spaces for that responsible innovation to occur. It has to be those things that allow for the development and testing of new approaches and models, but they have to be ones that are authentically connected to the needs of different learner populations. You know, it's interesting. We know that the current system that we have, it was just really built for a different time. There's a different predominant learner that it was designed around and for a very different economic reality. And when we think about what we have to do here, that we have to consider how to modify not just the policies, but the cultures and the mindsets that are needed to serve equity populations better, we have to look a lot at the realities that they're facing. So today's students are more often parents, caregivers, they're working or trying to get to work. They have huge constraints on their time. That's probably their their biggest constraint. They don't have the ability to learn to attend class, you know, every Tuesday at 7 p.m., for example. And they're carrying these extraordinary responsibilities with a lot of grace. And so we need to provide that kind of flexibility when life's realities prevent them from allowing their education to come first. So the policies that we have around everything from the way that higher education policy treats this population of of learners, um, the way that colleges and students are funded is centered around very structured time, time in classroom or the constraints of the academic calendar. And in a model like Calbright's, which allows flexibility on time, but is really focused on outcomes, this is the moment that we have to figure out what it actually takes to deliver these new learner-centered models for this diverse range of learners. And using that understanding to think about how we engineer the alignment of our policies. I'm glad you've used the example of that really emphasize time and, and the struggle that students have around their time. I feel like it took a pandemic for folks to realize this, but there's more awareness in policy circles of that piece. You know, as a last thought here, I think the potential for competency-based education with adult students right now seems very high. Are there any policy areas you would really suggest that policymakers look at to make that a reality in a way that would also have guardrails, you know, whether it's a change to the credit hour or financial aid. I mean, what are a couple pieces you leave folks with as real priorities? Having worn that regulatory hat for a number of years in my career, I would say that I'm generally an an accountability first kind of lady. And I still believe that with respect to the work that we do in terms of pushing innovation. And so I really think that the time that we are in requires a lot of ability for us to not blow the doors necessarily off of our existing financial aid programs and structures, but to carve out and to invest in dedicated space that is about developing new approaches that actually can contribute to what are emerging as effective models. And if we don't take the time to do that right now, we will not make informed changes to evolve federal financial aid policy or the way that institutions get funded at the state level. So 
for me, I, I don't think you can contort into sort of leapfrogging into immediate changes that need to occur, although there are a number that I would point to. I think that the best space for this work to occur right now is to be much more expansive and aggressive in our investments at the federal level, at the state level, around figuring out what works and the policy change that is connected to allowing these models to scale. And so I think we are engaged both as our own institution, but with a number of innovative partner institutions around the country who are eager to see this advance in a responsible way as well, because they see the barrier to scale that exists. And they're also, I think, quite aware that if we don't do this in a responsible way, we will see really adverse effects and unintended consequences associated with the current structure of, of how students access aid, what they access it for, the value of that, and the time limit in each of that. So I appreciate all of the focus on accountability, but I also know that at the end of the day, if we are not going beyond just our regulatory work to focus on proactively investing in finding new solutions, and we're not doing that in the public space, we're not evolving our public infrastructure in a way that is responsive to what we're seeing communities need. Absolutely. Well, we'll leave it there, Ajita. Thanks so much for doing this. And obviously, Calbright is an important experiment in American higher education in an important state. So we'll be watching the model as it plays out the next couple of years. And, and thank you again. Thank you so much. Stay tuned, everyone. Now we're going to turn to our sense-making segment. speaking with Mary Claggett and Nate Anderson to try to make sense of what we heard. Let's start with the adult students that these colleges are trying to reconnect with. You know, who are they? What are some of the needs that colleges need to think about in best serving these students? And let's start with Mary. Yeah, well, I think as we heard from both Robert and Ajita, a lot of these students are adults. They have very different needs than what we say our traditional students have. A number of them have barriers to education and employment, particularly if you're looking at people who were disproportionately impacted by COVID. A lot of these individuals were in low-paying jobs before, so they were looking to upskill so they can move into better-paying, more stable careers. A lot of them are parents and working adults. So they, again, as both Ajita and Robert talked about, they have very special needs in terms of supports. They need a lot more flexibility in terms of scheduling, in terms of class offerings. Nate, anything to add there? Yeah, the only thing I would add is that these are individuals who often have little or no post-secondary experience, many of whom don't have a high school diploma or equivalent. But we often, in the when we talk about this population, people will refer to them as low-skilled. And I think we think that's a bit of a misnomer. These are people who have sometimes years, uh, decades even, of work experience. They have specific training that they've received. They have skills that are high demand in the labor market. It's just a question of, are those skills part of a broader package of skills that lead to a job? And that's where the rescaling the education system comes in because you're really just trying to elevate the skills that they already have that really are valuable and build around those so that they can land a, a job and move forward in their career. Right. And as we heard from both folks, the funding for serving adult students and, and really any student in a community college comes from different sources, local, state, federal, and that can be a challenge on a couple levels. Let's stick with Nate on, on what that means. There are dozens of potential funding streams that institutions and individuals can tap into in order to receive 
short-term targeted training programs. And that can be funding set aside for everything from housing to the cost of tuition to the equipment that you need in order to do it. Uh, It can be funding that helps provide a stipend so that you can be enrolled in a program and not working full-time at the same time. But the problem is all these funding streams have different requirements on whether you can access them. So if you have kids, for example, versus if you don't, depending on how much money you make, not just lower income, but whether or not you are low enough income and questions like that, they come through different agencies that don't speak to each other so that local entities might not even be aware that other funding sources are available. And even outside of that, we see examples of where even within the same system, the funding is used differently under different rules, depending on how local interpretation or state policy affects it. So for an example, we have a program right now that's offering free education and training programs, IT training programs, 10 weeks for individuals who qualify. And we work with workforce boards in order to apply that training. And workforce boards have different rules about whether or not you can use free in the description of the program. It is an incredibly disconnected and siloed system. And we pretty regularly have to pull together groups of people, we call it our braided funding efforts, where we bring together groups of people representing all those agencies. We build tools, we train people in order to give them the skills they need to be able to make sense of this crazy world. And imagine it's that hard for the professionals that are in this space. Imagine being a student trying to figure out what your options are as well on top of picking the right program, on top of dealing with all the life challenges that you have being a working adult, often with kids, things like that. So a very fractured system and something which I personally think that policy has a lot to do with that and is a lot a part of the solution as well. Mary, let's build on that. Given some of the innovative practices we've seen and talked about in these interviews in reaching adult students, what are some of the policy fixes you'd like to see to make for a less fractured system? Well, one thing that uh, Jada mentioned is the need for a lot more flexibility in terms of what we fund. Our current Title IV student aid structure really is built upon funding programs based on seat time or the time that an individual sits in a classroom. And that really isn't a determining factor of quality. It precludes a lot of really um, innovative models that accelerate learning that result in shorter term credentials that can be stacked, but that can have significant labor market value, sort of precludes competency-based education and makes it very difficult for individuals to get the kind of training that they need to get back to work quickly, particularly people, again, who tend to be adults who don't have time to sit in a traditional classroom. Some of the other things that we want to see is a lot of encouragement for better articulation between community college and four-year colleges, for example, credit for prior learning, those kinds of things. And then again, back to Nate's point, I mean, I think alignment across systems so we can provide the kind of holistic services that individuals need who are very complex, have complex needs. Any last thoughts from you? In addition to Mary's great points, I'd love to see our intentional coordination at the state leadership level. I mean, these are, if you have your adult education agency working hand in hand with your community college system, working hand in hand with your workforce training system, and you're really aligning those resources so that you're creating seamless pathways for people to go from the earliest point in their educational needs all the way into employment and beyond, I think spending the time to do that will make for a more seamless and effective system and a more efficient use of resources, especially in an era of declining resources. That makes a big difference for states. So I would love to see more of that as well. 
Well, Nate, Mary, thanks for helping us make sense of all this. We'll certainly be watching the policy developments in coming months, and, and hopefully you can help us make sense of them too. Thank you. Thanks. Cheers. Cheers.